If you turn with me now to the scripture in which today's uh, gospel lesson is based, it comes from Ephesians chapter 3. It's really one of my favorite passages. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read from verses 14 through 19, and really the last two verses serve as our benediction. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And this is God's word. You know, in chapters one and two, the Apostle Paul, he shares a discourse, an amazing discourse about the great salvation. In chapter one, you kind of see, in one way, you can look at chapter one of Ephesians as uh, salvation from God's perspective. And in chapter two, it's kind of like uh, the salvation that he has given us from our perspective. And so chapter one, you see words like, he has chosen you, he has predestined you. And in chapter two, it's, it's, uh, we see that um, it is a gift of God, that, great, that salvation is a gift of God. This is the gospel that God gives us through Jesus Christ. And now we get to chapter three, and in chapters, chapter three, verses one to 12, the apostle Paul, he focuses on the power of the gospel for the church. So he's now turning his attention to the church, and he says, um, as, because he's writing really to the church in Ephesus as a whole, and he's talking about the power of the gospel for the church. And then we get to verse 14. And then he dives into what he started to say in verse 1. So he starts to say something in verse 1. What he says is, for this reason, and, and then he kind, of, he kind of jumps out of that for a while. And now in verse 14, he comes back. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. To kneel uh, in the ancient times is always a sign of great emotion and at the same time, sobriety. So there's a lot of gravitas here. This is a passionate prayer of Paul. What we see is, as Paul reflects on the gospel, in chapters uh, one and two, it moves into pray. Paul's thinking about the gospel, sharing about, about the gospel, um, proclaiming the gospel, and as he's doing that, it moves Paul to pray. What does he pray for? Verse 16, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. Notice, he doesn't pray that they would be protected from illness. It's not like you know they didn't have illness. It's not that he was, he didn't pray for them to be released from oppression. They were all oppressed. It was an oppressive society and they were a marginalized uh, group. It's not that he was praying that they were protected from riots or poverty, sickness. He, does, he doesn't ask God to do anything with respect to circumstances. So we're going to look at what he does do. There are three points here. We're going to go through them as, as quickly as I can. One, why Paul prays. Two, what does he pray for? And three, how do we get, how do we receive what Paul prays for? Now this is you as a body, as a church, now as listeners, as hearers of God's word. Why does Paul pray? What is he praying for? And then how do we receive it? First, why does Paul pray? Now the readers of this epistle, this letter that Paul writes to Ephesus are Christians. He's writing to the church. 
And this is what Paul's asking, verse 16, that God strengthen his people, that he strengthens the church, that he strengthens you with power through the Spirit. Why? One, in verse 17, it's so that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Secondly, verses 18 and 19, that the church, that's you, is rooted and established in love, may grasp, may know the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge. And lastly, verse 19, he says that they would be filled, that they, meaning you, that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. One, that Christ would dwell in you. Two, that you would know the love of Christ. And three, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God in Christ. Now think about this. In chapter two, Paul says that all Christians already have all this. You already have Jesus dwelling in you. In chapters one and two, all Christians have the love of Christ. And by being united with Jesus, when there's union, you already have the fullness of God in you. So why is he speaking to a people that already have these things? And this is the reason why it's very important. You know, one of the biggest dangers to Metro's focus on the gospel, when you hear the gospel every week, when we speak, when you hear and see Christ the centrality of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus in all things. And week after week, we are inundating you. The more, uh, one way to say it is, you could start on the outer rings of Metro and as you make your way into the central part of the ring, you're gonna see that what it was on the outside is the same thing as what's on the inside, and that is the centrality, the wholeness, the sufficiency, the supremacy of Christ in all these things. You're gonna be endowed and, and inundated with these things. But one of the biggest dangers of our focus on the gospel in and out all the time is that on one level, we have a group of people who believe they have these things. They think they have these things. But yet at another level, they have yet to really experience them. Another way of saying that is you can hang with a bunch of people who've had the experience and not had the experience. You could hang with a bunch of people and almost collectively almost think that you've had the experience and yet not have the experience. And what Paul's saying is that there's a lot of people in the church who get the gospel in concept, who get the gospel in theory, who get the gospel in principle. They believe it in, to that extent, but they haven't experienced it in a way that really powers them, shapes them, moves them. And so they, don't, they still don't really know. They still don't really get it. And, the, and so they live powerless lives. It's one thing to know, Paul says. It's another thing, verses 16 to 19, to really grasp it, to experience it in your inner being, to have Christ dwell in your hearts, to grasp and to know and to be filled with it, to have it envelop and power and move every dimension of your life, every sense that you have, what you smell and taste and, and, and understand, to really grasp it in a way that it becomes your reality. Why is that so important? It's really important because it's really possible for real Christians, real Christians, over time to almost become desensitized. It's not because the Holy Spirit has loosened his grip on his people. It's because we in many ways have been distracted and we've actually started to grasp other things. And so it's very possible for real Christians to live distracted lives with some degree of shallowness, and hollowness and emptiness and inauthenticity. Because what they say they know, what they say they believe, what they're teaching, what they're leading people in, what they say they have in principle 
It's not something that they're practicing and applying every day in their lives. In fact, a lot of times, it's very natural for us to be drawn away from these kind of things, to be drawn away from the gospel truth. Because think about it, what you do naturally apart from God is absolutely natural to you. And so it's almost instinctive. And what the gospel does, it comes in, it transforms your instinct. So to be able to apply that, you have to be intentional. It takes work. Sometimes it takes work. It takes, it takes thought. It takes uh, retracing a lot of times, reflection. And it takes a lot of work to do that. It's exhausting at times. And so what happens is we tend to take a break. We tend to veer away because we get it. We say we get it. It's not that you weren't Christians before, but there grows a developing gap, an incongruity, an inconsistency that leads to that degree eventually over time, if you multiply that by 12 months, 12 years, then what happens is, um, you know, you, it leads to a degree of shallowness and hollowness and uh, inauthenticity, almost an insincerity. In fact, the word sincere, it comes from the Latin word sine sera, which means without wax. In ancient times, there was, it was an age of artists, the age of sculptors. And sculptors, as they're working with, uh, with their sculptures, what happens is you could work for a while on this. It's not cheap. It's expensive. And as you're doing this, as you're finally trying to build this sculpture, you, could, you start to develop cracks. You take shortcuts. So what do these sculptors do is these artists, they take wax. They melt the wax right into those cracks so that you, as you're coming by, if you were to come into the gallery and look, you would overlook the cracks because they've been filled with wax. And so it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for you to walk down a street where there are sculptors uh, and, and shops where these sculptures are being sold, signs that would be put out that says sine sera, which means without wax. In other words, every sculpture contained in here has no cracks. Every sculpture here has not been covered over. If you see a crack, it's real, it's authentic. In the church today, is a big issue because we cover over our cracks. We think that the way to draw people in, we live in a very evangelical culture where everything has to be pristine and pretty and nice. We're in this kind of do-it-yourself culture. Now we have so many shows, cooking shows with beautiful kitchens. We have do-it-yourself shows with beautiful homes. And so you, we're almost led, we're being drawn and distracted away to, to kind of build our lives in that pristine order and shape. It draws in our natural instinct to cover over our cracks from a spiritual standpoint. So we use relationships. We use our wealth. We use career building. This is our wax. It's what we use to fill our gaps. It shows in how you pursue your career. It shows in how you, how you spend. It shows in how you give. It shows in how you get into relationships and get out of relationships. There's almost an insincerity that starts to develop because we're not applying the truths of the gospel because, quite frankly, the truths of the gospel costs at times. We don't like the cracks. We're ashamed of our cracks. And all those things, those mentalities, those views are counter to the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says here, you don't truly then know the love of Christ. You haven't really experienced the gospel in a way that shapes you, in a way that changes you. And without really knowing, without really experiencing truth, you're not going to have a powerful life. You're not going to live a life of power. Which is why then Paul prays that you will be strengthened with power. Imagine you've been given 
a huge inheritance, a large sum of money. It's legally yours. It's been transferred to you. It's, it's appropriated in your bank account. In fact, the only, way that, the only way that you would need to do, the only thing that you would need to do is to appropriate that wealth by tapping in, right, and cashing out. And yet, you don't draw on that. That's what this life is like. You don't draw on that power. You don't draw on, in that, in that, you know, in that large sum, it's all yours. It's legally yours. All you have to do is draw on it. But instead, we choose to live in poverty. And Paul's saying that that's exactly where most of the churches, I mean, this clearly was an issue because the entire book of Ephesians, that incredible discourse, is to really one of Paul's favorite churches, if there was such a thing. It's one of Paul's favorite churches, and he's writing to them, and he's saying, this is the thing that I'm praying for you as a body. And so Metro, this is the thing that all pastors really should be praying for their churches, but I pray for you. Living in spiritual poverty, that you would know the love of Jesus in a way that really moves you and shakes you. So that would rid you of envy and jealousy and stinginess and, and your lack of forgiving and, uh, and complaining and grumbling and struggling and striving and working and just being exhausted and being anxious, trying to earn the approval and the love from other people in a broken way, manipulating people to get it or receive it or to steal it or to claim it or to sacrifice for it. You are rich. I mean, people, if that was you with that bank account, people would say, why are you living this way? You are a rich person. You are richer than beyond compare. But it's like you saying, I know, but There's a saying, you can take the person out of the hood, but you can't take the hood out of the person. What you're saying is, I'm still living in this. It's not so much a physical, geographical issue. There's a relational and spiritual slumming that I am living. To truly get the gospel in a way that shapes you, Paul knows that if you have this, he doesn't need to, to pray for you to be free from illness. He doesn't need to, be, to pray for you to come out of poverty. He doesn't need to pray for you and your career and your job aspirations. He knows that if you have this, you will be, you will be able to handle any circumstance. And so it is of primary importance. And that's consistent all through scripture. It's of first importance. What does he pray for? Verse 16 Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in, it, in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Lots of prepositions there. What is this power of the Spirit in your inner being? It's a spiritual inner sensitivity to gospel truth. It's that spiritual sensitivity apart from your natural instincts. Our natural instincts are to not apply the gospel. So to hear it and say, I understand it, that is natural. But it is unnatural, it is supernatural, it is above natural. When you say that you've heard something that is of God and you apply it, that takes an inner sensitivity prompted by God's Holy Spirit to move you and to shape you. That means it's one thing to hear it and say, I get it. Because it's like math. You either learn, you learn it. But to have that spiritual inner sensitivity to gospel truth, that's to, to go beyond just seeing it and hearing it, but to apply it. 
That is the power. That's what Paul's praying for, that you would have that, that you would develop that. Verse 18, he prays that you may have power to grasp the gospel, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. What does that mean? It's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives us power. The Holy Spirit strengthens us. The Holy Spirit preps that inner being to grasp the love of Jesus. The Holy Spirit shapes you in a way that you can receive and and trust and know the love of Jesus in a way that it plays out outwardly. And he says, as that happens, he wants you to then grasp it, pursue it. That word grasp, it's not kind of a passive word, like holding your hands out. Um, it's, not like, it's not the same word even as like, oh, I just want you to really believe this. It's a wrestling word. It means to take something, to grapple with it, to get a hold of it, to wrestle it down. If the Holy Spirit is working in you, and someone comes to you and approaches you and starts to call you out, call your character out, you still feel safe. You still feel loved. There's an inner sensitivity that kicks in by the Holy Spirit to to move you to say, I need to listen to this and really apply what these people who care for me and love me are saying. You feel safe because you're held in the bosom of God. You feel loved because this is being said by the love of God. Sometimes those things aren't heard lovingly, and yet it's the love of God that you have the privilege to hear at all. It's, it's that desire to change and the will to change. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is actually working in your heart, you don't just hear about God's love or about God's holiness. You grasp it. You wrestle it down. You pursue it. You want to own it. Christ's approval. You want to own it. Christ's love. You own it. Christ's heart for you. It becomes more shaping, it becomes more sweet, it becomes more assuring, more real than anything in your life. That desire to change. If now, if that's what spiritual maturity, progressive maturity looks like, then what spiritual immaturity? What spiritual insensitivity? It's to neglect truth. It's to neglect when people call you out. It's to run and to evade. It's to resent critique. It's to resist change. It's actually to, uh, to move away from community. If you think about it, Paul's writing to the whole of the church, and we're going to get into this, but he talks about the importance of the church and all of this. It's, but it's to, uh, if you think about it, we oftentimes, when we hear something like this, we bristle and we get apprehensive. Paul says, I want you to take it in. I want you to bring it down. I want you to clutch onto this. Why? Because if you're not pursuing or clutching onto, we only got two hands. We only got limited grasp. So if you're not grasping onto the love of Christ, which is supernatural, you're still grasping onto something else to replace the love of Christ in your life. Our hearts of sin looks for things apart from God always, constantly. John Calvin, great theologian, says that our hearts are like idol factories. We make stuff up that we can hold on to then as a source of righteousness and a sense of worth for ourselves. That's what an idol is. That's what we call an idol. Something that replaces God for us to give us a sense of worth. And when you clutch onto that idol, in the ancient times, they had these little figurines and they had these little shrines and, and they, would, they would give and they would serve. And it was really a way to manipulate the gods to give them what they wanted. But today we put away the gold and the silver and the wooden, altar, the wooden idols. And we've clutched onto things like wealth and power and status and approval family, 
a relationship, that one significant relationship in our lives or relationships in general. When you clutch onto an idol, the Bible says that it clutches onto you and it starts to rule you and control you. In fact, many, uh, you know, and this is, some, this is probably for another sermon, but we become like the idols we desire and pursue. So careers, relationships, wealth, your reputation, that's what leads to that insincere, those are the distractions that lead to that insincere, inconsistent, incongruent life that leads us to a fakeness and a phoniness and a powerlessness. Because on one hand, we say we believe it. We believe the gospel. We love Jesus. But on the other hand, we're grasping onto other things. We're constantly pursuing and making up things to pursue apart from the love of Christ. And that's what dwells in us. That's what we think is going to fill us. That's what we think is going to give us fullness. That's what we're clutching onto, which is why in verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, I pray that you will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What he's saying is everything else is empty. Everything else, you know, is, is just like, um, it looks puffy and it looks good and it looks like it can fill you, but it's just full of air, nothing. It's empty. But he wants you to be filled to the measure, that infinite measure of all the fullness of God. He's talking about a completely new kind of life. He's not just talking about something that you feel, he's talking about a new foundation. He's saying if you're built on this foundation, it is firm. If you really, really get this, it will change and shape your life forever. It will change every decision forever. You're not going to be as needy. You're not going to be as fearful. You're not going to be as afraid. You're not going to be as selfish. You're not going to be as self-absorbed. You're not going to be as envious or jealous or angry or proud or depressed. You won't be empty. You'll be filled. How do you receive it? And we get to the close here. I'm going to start by saying some things that you already know. What does Paul do? One, he kneels. To kneel is to have a passion, a gravity, a sobriety, and at the same time, when you kneel, you're going lower, you're, you're being submissive. In other words, Paul obeyed. He didn't say, for this kneel, for this reason, um, I kneel to God. He says, for this reason, I kneel to the Father. He's obeying a king who is fatherly, and a father who is king. And there's this intimacy with this father, and so there's this intimacy with this king. And there's also this gravity. Secondly, he prays. He prayed that we would get the gospel. So what does that mean? You can pray an honest prayer that you would get the gospel. You can pray the most honest prayer and say, man, I'm still lost. I don't get it. Help me to get it. Because Lord, I need it. I need you. Make it a regular prayer in your life. Thirdly, and I said we would come back to it, there's community. The text says in verse 18, I want you to have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus. He doesn't say, I just want you to have power. He says, I want you to have power together with all the saints since chapter 2, Paul's been saying, you want to experience the power of God? 
You need to live out the gospel as a body. You know why? Because we've, we, t- we say over and over that the best way to experience God is in the context of community because God by nature is community. But Paul goes even deeper. Not only is God by nature a community and therefore the best way to understand and know God is in the context of community, but living out the gospel as a body, as an integrated, unified body, is not natural. It can only survive if you draw on your supernatural instincts as a church. Number one, you do it better in community than by yourself. You're designed to do do it better as a community than as yourself. Over and over, when we oftentimes read the book of Ephesians, we read many of the books of the Bible as if God is just talking to us personally. And in a sense, he is, absolutely. But he's talking to the church. He's talking to you, plural. And so we have to read it and know it as us plural. We have to assume in our lives that we're already connected to the church and all the more stay connected to the body. I've been talking to the college students a lot these days because um, you know, I've, been, I've been getting more involved with our college students. And one of the things that I've been emphasizing the last two or three weeks has been just that. The deep importance of coming to know Jesus, not just in the context of your dorm room, not just in the context of what you're listening and hearing personally and taking in, but in the context of a body because that's how we were designed to do, to listen. A lot of people don't think they need the body. You know, a lot of people don't think they do that, but you have to understand, they think, oh, I just have the word of God and I have, I have Christian CDs and, and I have all these things. Um, look, we were designed, we were designed to connect as a body because in the body, through the body, that's where the sins come out. All the things that you dislike about people, all the things that, so you could be very, very well and pristine on the outside until you come in contact with the body and that's when the ugly sides start to show through and that's when the supernatural instincts are meant to kick in and, and in your sensitivity to the gospel, it's not so much that you're praying that that person would change, but it starts to work in you that you would change. The fourth thing Paul says is to grasp it. Why does Paul use this wrestling metaphor? It's because our hearts are always battling. Our hearts are always fighting and resisting God when we hear his word. It may sound good. There's some tingling that you may experience. But to apply that, we're so resistant to it regularly. There's a battle for your heart right now. Right now there's a battle for your heart. And it's two fathers. One father is saying, you're my child. And so when you encounter struggle and circumstance, this natural father, this worldly father says, I want, you need to protect yourself. You need to preserve yourself. You need to run. You need to fight. You need to serve. You need to work. You need to indulge yourself. That's what your power is for. And you need to build on that power to get more power so you can fight and protect and preserve and serve and indulge yourself. But God, our father, the king of the universe. First he says, why are you so anxious? Am I not king? Do I not own everything, the universe? Our father, God himself says, you are my child, but you are a child, you see? You want power? Be my child, be weak, be weak. Surrender, 
we don't want to do that, so we struggle with God, we wrestle against God, we're grasping. We're still grasping because we're grasping for something else. Obedience to the word of God. Prayer, community. It should, ha- it should act on your heart in such a way that it moves you to wrestle in your honesty. There is the sincerity, it starts to come out. With trusting God, wrestle with trusting and loving your neighbor. You wrestle with generosity. You wrestle with serving. Oh, your time is so precious, we say. We should be wrestling in a way that leads to us working it out, really. Not just thinking it out, but applying it. And then to shift then from our natural instincts to our supernatural instincts that God has endowed us with by His Spirit. There's power. What does it mean to grasp the love of Jesus? You have to, what does it mean to preach the love of Jesus to ourselves in a way that can, we can start to grasp it? It's only when you understand the gospel that the love of God turns into something that is just powerful and a dynamic reality that shapes your heart and, and soothes your soul and gives you power. How wide is the love of God? If Jesus Christ died on, our, on the cross so that you're saved by grace alone, then that means God's love is infinitely wide. It spans everything you've ever done, everything that you're doing, and everything that you will ever do. How long is the love of God? We often think, well, if I just live a good life, if, I'm, if I obey God, then God's gonna love me, I'll be approved, I'm gonna honor God. Now think about this, if, you're, if the love of God is only as long as your obedience, then it's not very long, because we fail every day. If the love of God is only as long as the extent of your goodness, then you are gonna spiritually fail, and then in your mind, God has failed you, or God will not care. God doesn't give you access because of your obedience. He gives you access because of Jesus' obedience. And Jesus' obedience is infinitely long. It's so long, it spans all the depths of eternity into the depths of time. Jesus Christ came down for us. There's the length and breadth of his love. How high is the love of God? In John chapter 17, Jesus says, Father, I want them to have glory, the glory that we had before the creation of the world. You know what that means? It means that Jesus wants to give us the same thing that fills our hearts. He's praying that we would have the same thing that fills him, that we would be filled with an infallible joy, an unending joy, an unending peace, an unending love from all eternity. That is an infinitely high peace and joy and love that will overwhelm any, I guarantee you, any incremental peace and joy and love you are seeking and grasping for right now. And we work way harder for those incremental things than the infinite things that Christ has promised us and paid for for us on his cross. Why is God's love so high? Because God's love is so infinitely deep. Why do we even get all these things in the first place? And it's because Jesus Christ gave it up. And this is the key, look to the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there is, I am sinless, but my arms have been stretched wide to pay the penalty of my people's sins. My obedience is infinitely long and yet I will suffer infinitely long for them. I am supposed to, I deserve to be with God, but now I've been forsaken. And so I've been raised high, infinitely high on a cross so that ultimately I will be exalted high on high because of my obedience. 
And though I and the Father are one, now I am enduring the complete separation from God, from the Father, and I'm experiencing the infinite depths of hell. Separation from God completely because of our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, he says, did he do it just cringing and just angry and just resistant? No, he didn't. His love was infinitely long. And so because of that, there was joy. The author of Hebrews 12 said he did it for the joy. For the gl- he did it with gladness. He did it perfectly and he endured perfectly for us. Jesus' love is infinitely wide, infinitely long, infinitely high, infinitely deep. Because of suffering is infinitely wide and long and high and deep for you. That's the width and length and height and depth of Christ's love. Some of you are suffering guilt. Some of you just can't forgive right now. Some of you are just wrestling with big decisions in your life and there's anxiety. Some of you, there's, there's temptation every day that you face and you think it's unique. You know, there may be other people who are suffering just like that right now, participating with you. Some of you, there's just depths of depression. You know, the whole nature of depression is that it's so deep or just deep enough that you by your own strength cannot climb out of it. Some of you, there's just a depth of rejection or brokenness. Some of you, there's a a pride that has led to a blindness or an envy that has led to a blindness, a rage that has led to a blindness. And so in your myopia, there's just a lot of brokenness in your life. You know, you've stumbled over things and you've hit, bumped into things. Only if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ will you be able to understand then the width and the length and the height and the depth of God's love to give you the strength and the power to endure every one of these circumstances and endure all suffering. Much like Christ, Jesus Christ endured. Jesus Christ obeyed. And we're in union with him. We can endure. We can endure in these smaller ways. It may not be small to us. To a child, I mean, some of these small things, you know, I watch, you know, 20 meltdowns a day with my son. And the thing is, every one of them, I think, are minuscule, but it's his world. His world shrinks to the size of his problems, his immediate circumstances, much like ours. We are children. Only if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ will you be able to endure. Your career will not give you width and length and height and depth, fullness. Your spouses and your children, they will fill you to a degree, but they're not infinitely the way that you need. And so your heart will always hunger. Your neighborhood won't do that for you. Your neighborhood will never sacrifice for you in that way. Your reputation could never own that and support that. Your bank account will never be able to supply that. Tap into the richness of what it means to be in Christ today. And I pray that that you will be able to respond Gather together. Friends, I mean, it's my hope that we can do that and reflect on this. Reflect on this passage this week. Let it build a greater anticipation so that when we arrive together the next Sunday that we gather, there will be great rejoicing and delight in the Father. The cracks have blown wide open, not because we're not going to hide them, but 
the wax is off and we can sincerely and worship God the Father and delight in him because of his first delight in us. Let's pray together as body.